0: Hey, pooch pooch, pooch pooch italiano.
1: Italian. Hey, pooch, pooch, pooch. Oh, pooch, great. Pooch, now pooch, I'm carried away. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wait, put up, put up? is that is That's that one a... of those songs with copyright? Do I have to edit it?
1: I think it's you know, the first 15 seconds are fine. Isn't that isn't that the, the, the how it works? I have no idea. Dan is gonna have
0: to tell us. But yeah, Dan's Dan's our lawyer. But um Yeah, I, well actually hold on. If 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 anything, getting sued would be good publicity. So hey pooch 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 Italiano <laughs> hey pooch pooch.
1: Just don't All don't right. mention that that famous uh cartoon rodent. That's it's too much uh infamy.
0: Oh Mortimer, yeah, I remember Mortimer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Roger the rodent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Roger the rodent.
1: Roger, Roger rodent. <laughs> don't mention him.
0: <laughs> and Dum Dum the Dog. Remember him?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I just yeah. remember there was this one um This one episode of like Family Guy, they were like talking about like oh like Dumb Dumb the dog Roger Rodent. Then he looks at the cameras like you know what we're talking about. We can't say it, but you know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! But um, but how's uh how's everything been? I mean, we've been living in the same house for the past couple of weeks, so right,
0: which has been fun. And I got a new scratchy thing, so I can scratch my back while recording now without it making too much noise. Nice, nice. This is the closest it's I'm going to been... get to actually like affording an executive assistant.
1: <laughs> just a back scratcher. A stick
0: with a plastic hand on it.
1: I just have a, uh, my, my 15 year old office chair that I just wrote special my days. Against. It's also
0: my girlfriend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so in other words, things are going good. Things are going Yeah, well.
0: Same old, same old. The response yeah. to how's your love life is downloading.
1: <laughs> I feel that. I mean, uh, to tell you about my day, uh, or or how everything has been on my end. Um, I went and watched the Minions movie uh, with zero kids, so that that should tell you a lot about what I've been up to for for my three weeks here in Kuwait. Um,
0: zero kids, which
1: I'm sure you've seen, with w- without any kids. I think yeah, you At the went Minions too, didn't. You? No, there were there were a lot of kids. Just we didn't go with any. It was just a bunch Wait, of like, like 27 and th- it was just a bunch of like 27 and 30 year olds going to watch the Minions, which see, in these hindsight, movies, kind of
0: these movies hit the sweet spot of like between appealing to children and appealing to stoners and adults who have nothing better to do.
1: <laughs> it's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah. So it just has the perfect market for that third, for that third uh, demographic. It, it definitely the fun employed. the sweet spot here in quite The fun employed. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well i mean most of uh most of kuwait is in europe right now so
1: that's kind of true actually it has been kind of empty and the the same people who just speed up and down that road we live yeah. right next to um, so they're in europe really... and
0: and they took our weather with them apparently at least for the next day day or two
1: oh really they have like yeah, heat have you waves seen
0: that? so like you know historically the hottest heat wave to ever hit the uk was like 38 or 39 celsius so it, the forecast is is for London to hit 40 degrees Celsius for the first time
1: ever. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And like London heats like humid. That's not going to be fun.
0: Well, what makes matters worse is that nobody has AC because like these days, th- these kinds of like heat waves, the 35 degrees Celsius plus heat waves were like, you know, few and far between, but you know, for obvious yeah. reasons, it's, it's becoming a little more common nowadays. Right. So, yeah, and this is a very popular misconception, I think, with just like uh, climate change as a whole. Like, when when we say it's going to hit forty degrees Celsius in London, we mean like on a one day heat wave, not every single day, all the time, like you have in Kuwait. But right. Uh, still, the fact that that is happening is alarming. Um,
1: I mean, French French and English homes are basically like tin cans. So those yeah those are going to get quite dangerous once they're, those they're whenever, built
0: specifically to keep the heat in. To, yeah you know cut your yeah. heating bill
1: you know exactly i remember there was there's a heat wave that hit france where like the temperature went above like 30 degrees celsius for a couple of days um and that just went insane it just like people died it was kind of horrible
0: yeah yeah it, it's uh it's ins- i mean I, when when people think that they're overreacting in europe i tell people in Kuwait, where by the way like routinely hit for the non kuwaiti listeners where it routinely hits between 45 50 degrees celsius all the time um mm-hmm. you know this imagine it drops to like five below zero in kuwait
1: Ooh.
0: like imagine the yeah, carnage people... people would be dying on the street because they wouldn't know what to do right whereas in toronto yeah. it's like oh okay whatever
1: moving on i think i think if it ever if if climate, if the climate gets like if climate change gets to a point where it snows in kuwait like that would be army i don't I don't, I don't i don't
0: think I think we would have to be at like many thousands of parts per million for it to snow and coate. Um, most likely, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really risk winner. at that. I think most likely is just, it's just you know what we're seeing now, which is like more of these weird uh, anomalies.
1: Instead of being once every ten years, will be every other year. Um, true. And kind of sad too, because now you can't like run away from somewhere and just get perpetually great weather. I mean. So, Cal, Yeah, but it, it, again, it's 40 degrees side.
0: Celsius for a day in London. If you look at the forecast, it's back to like 23, 24 Celsius next week. So, true. Not even next week, in 72 hours, but um mm-hmm. yeah, so again, you know, th- these it's more about like anomalies over a 24, 48-hour period more so than sustained 40 degrees Celsius in London all the day. I mean, all day every day for years on end because that's quite. Um Right. Okay. Uh, besides again, we would have to be at like thousands of parts per million for that to happen, but, but energy, sure. energy discussions have been at the forefront since the
1: beginning of the war, really. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, there, there's been a, there's been a lot of like discussions about energy just simply because that's basically what Russia makes most of its money off of. And, uh, I don't know if you saw this, like the, 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 you know, we, we have to admit something to both of our listeners. Um, but we did miss last week's episode, right? And I think it's because we slipped into like constant food comas, and then our intern decided to strike, so we had to negotiate more uh, newspaper, toilet paper for him, and right. uh, we also burned his mother's we figured out that down just in case he decides to <laughs> wise up again. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we worked very much like the guild age, <laughs> basically. Basically, um, so, yeah, basically, but, um, yeah. Uh, this yeah, discussion so this, about this, like insane,
0: uh, bizarre weather is 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 you know becoming an energy issue because everyone again keeps talking about when are we going to stop burning fossil fuels and what's going on with direct air capture and and other options.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So so this kind of goes back to the headline that I kind of came across, but you know it might be might be kind of old sc- old school or like old news now, but I'm still kind of super excited about what I read because I think it's going to be very consequential in a good way for the future of energy. So basically I came across this New York Times headline um that just said that Europe called gas and nuclear energy green and um France's president Macron is calling the nuclear just calling nuclear energy sustainable. Right. Um and that's been kind of like a a cherry on top on top of like this common trend that I've been looking at recently where France has really been kind of at the forefront of the energy scene in Europe and is really expanding their um, nuclear power grid and and most of the news that comes out of there is about just the future of power, helping out European countries with power, getting them off um you know, gas or or, or fuel yep. from from Russia. Um to and, clarify you know, the fr- one point, um you know,
0: again, labeling gas as green, there's a asterisk there, which is only when it's replacing coal. Yeah. Because it burns way, way cleaner than coal. Um, it still right. emits carbon, obviously, but it's still anything is better than coal.
1: Definitely. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, like, yeah, g- going back to the whole, like, French people being at the forefront of this, you know, the French people, generally speaking, are in support of the president, um, who's been making a lot of those decisions, but... What's kind of been interesting has been that other other com, uh, other European countries have basically been taking their nuclear reactors offline yeah. um, for the stupidest reason, in my opinion, but understandable. But it's uh, mm. basically concerns about disasters like Fukushima, yeah. um, about not having to deal with another meltdown, like another Chernobyl incident or anything along the lines of that. Um, but France has really kind of gone the opposite direction here because... They also nationalized their EDF. Um, EDF is it, it's it stands for something in French. I can't name it off the top of my head, but it's basically their like eating default. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We just lost all of our one listener in France, so yeah. apologies. Um but but um yeah, their EDF is basically like well, how, what's the best way to put it? It's like their Aramco. <laughs> That's the best way my sort of my GCC.
0: Electricity it to it
1: France. Yeah. So it's their, their electricity company. Um, but basically they nationalized it. So now the government owns it completely. And that means that the government is now the only authority capable of constructing nuclear reactors and selling that energy also, um, yeah. which I know you have a lot of thoughts about here.
0: Yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, libertarian in me hates the idea of something being nationalized, first of all. But uh, <laughs> definitely. But but to be clear, EDF, by the way, is I mean, even prior to this nationalization, it was eighty four percent owned by the government, so it's not like it was a super decentralized structure. Um, and on top of that, it's been absolutely riddled with problems, um, management problems and and financial problems because they just have so much debt. Um, EDF is absolutely crucial to, you know, French lights staying on. So there's a vested national interest in making sure that the thing is healthy. Um, it was, it was nationalized for a variety of reasons, but number one, in my opinion is the French government can borrow as the French government at a far, far cheaper rate than any private corporation because it's the French government. Um, And that would be necessary when it comes to uh, building new nuclear uh, capacity, as well as uh, refurbishing and uh, you know maintaining the upkeep of the existing reactors. Um, so the primary cost of nuclear technology really comes down to financing. So it's been prohibitively expensive because getting it financed was expensive. So having the government own it helps do away with that risk. Um, historically, you know, nuclear technology financing has been far far less than oil and gas, but even te- sorry, uh, nuclear industry financing has been uh, not as plentiful as oil and gas, Um, but even the oil and gas uh, base of financing is slowly changing, except in cases where gas is replacing coal and lending to coal has become basically untouchable. Um, So things things are definitely changing, but they still need the push that is necessary from being government-owned in order to be able to raise capital. They've made it very clear that they intend for EDF to massively increase uh, operations. Um, EDF is already running some pretty amazing nuclear plants, and they bought into the new nuclear infrastructure that's being built in the UK, the new, the six new power plants. Um, oh, yeah. It's just a matter of their financial structure, which has been very poor. So sooner or later, it was, it was a matter of nationalization or bankruptcy. And bankruptcy would be horrific for worldwide nuclear uh, uptake. Um, to be clear uh, about your point on you know German nuclear technology, um, uh, only about 10% of Germany's power grid comes from nuclear power. So it's not like it was all that much to begin with. In France, it's around 75, 80. Wow. So France is about as green as a grid can get for pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, EDF had a number of, I wouldn't say missteps because frankly, it was like totally unforeseeable given what happened, but EDF had... Planned for an unusually large number of reactors to be shut down for routine maintenance, uh, starting shortly before the invasion of Ukraine and the extreme uh, short. Sorry, the the, the extreme uh, shortfalls in energy. So, again, France is tied into the European grid, right? So, if they generate much more electricity than they need, they can export it to neighboring countries. And when neighboring countries generate more power while their nuclear reactors are off for maintenance, they can purchase energy from, you know, nearby jurisdictions, mainly Germany, you know, a kilowatt hour, the price of a kilowatt hour pre and post Ukraine in Germany has gone up about six times. So you can imagine France doesn't necessarily want to buy any more from Germany at at the time, especially not at these prices. And Germany may end up going back into the stone age if prices keep going higher. I mean, it in Italy you have a lot of uh, kind of populist revolt over things including the cost of living and the price of energy going up the government basically right. fell apart um so really it's in everyone's best interest at least in Europe for EDF to be nationalized um for them to be able to borrow at french government rates and then basically get them to build a ton more nuclear capacity and basically be the european fuel tank so to speak so
1: yeah i i yeah. do kind of have an interesting kind of perspective or question um, you know, you being a VC, me kind of being a founder, both of us having experience kind of noticing what things have been like in private enterprise and how fast things move in private enterprise. So, yeah. and this might touch on or like bring out the inner libertarian, both of us. But, you know, I think it's definitely awesome that the EDF was nationalized because that means it doesn't need to worry about money too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think that's going to do with like innovation and actual the, the actual pace of, you know? execution and operations and all that stuff that's actually gonna honestly nothing because you 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 don't think so the,
0: the innovation when it comes to nuclear is kind of creating new reactors new reactor models and making them more efficient and that kind of a thing and ultimately at the end of the day if you're supplying power pretty much anywhere in the world either either you're doing it with the government or very very closely uh in close coordination with the government so there's really no way around the government when it comes to operating utility so, I think it's the same as looking at like, you know, military tech. Um, right. There's a lot of innovation there, but ultimately you have one buyer.
1: True. Yeah, I, I kind of see that as well. But my, my kind of worry is it slips into kind of a situation like NASA and SpaceX. If, you know, you have this like private company that's like wanting to get to Mars and that self landing rockets and all that type mm-hmm. of stuff. And it's just moving at a ridiculous pace, but still having to go through the government, not being able to work around them. Um, but then that branch, or like SpaceX's equivalent in the government, is just dealing with you know outsourced part being delayed and going over budget after outsourced part being delayed, and going over budget. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just I just hope that's the norm in the U.S. and not really anywhere else, including France. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, the thing yeah. is,
1: the French are in
0: desperate need of a continued supply of cheap electricity. So it's really not in anybody's best interest to start stalling EDF.
1: That is kind of true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The UK also, I mean, EDF has bought into their recent nuclear expansion. They own a significant Mm -hmm. share. So now the UK is going to be very heavily interested, heavily invested in uh, ensuring the EDF continues to operate smoothly because they don't want hiccups there. So yeah, that's us Mm -hmm. prognosticating as usual.
1: Yeah, <laughs> definitely, um, but but kind of zooming out and kind of looking at the main thing of of Europe calling gas and nuclear energy green, and then France basically taking the forefront of this and like wanting to nationalize the EDF. There were a couple of points that kind of came to mind as I was reading that article by the New York Times. Yeah. Um, first of all, Ventreber's prophecy number one billion kind of came true. Um, which, by the way, I was kind of looking back at our previous episodes, and every time we talk about a current, a the ongoing tech event, um, we always throw out a couple of ideas and predictions, and most of the time, the thing that has happened has been something that we talked about. I don't know what kind of like predictive capabilities. I we am have. Fartstradamus. <laughs> I am nostril, damas. Um do, yeah, we'll just go by farts to damas and, but, um, yeah, it's it's weird so that we we should definitely kind of, you know if if we have one loyal listener, they should definitely kind of go back the episodes and see how many predictions we actually ended up getting right. Um, but but, yeah, so going back to the point, you know, one of the prophecies came to came true, and to clarify, we had an entire episode at the beginning of this Ukraine invasion about how innovation thrives in war. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine has seen quite the renaissance in the way power is viewed. You know, so one of the things it did is exposed it exposed Germany's dependence on Russian gas as well as Russia's soft underbelly, um, which is basically its economy's reliance on gas and oil exports, and just it really kind of put a magnification. On just the energy industry and the dynamics of how energy is kind of bought and sold in Europe, um, which has basically resulted in the need for newer energy types to kind of come out. And now that's why everyone just would not shut up about nuclear and and you know is is relabeling a lot of former energy like sources and methods um to just make them a bit more generally acceptable. Um, which has definitely been interesting to kind of sit on the think, sidelines and see.
0: I think this is more an exposure of Europe's soft underbelly than, than Russia's. I mean, Russia has, has fared the sanctions pretty well. I mean, their rule is pretty strong. I mean, they can still twist Europe's arm whenever they want.
1: Yeah. But I think, yeah, yeah, so you do touch on a good point. Um, And I say (laughs) that speaking in between burps, uh, because we're in Kuwait. Uh, (laughs) We just say talk about another source of.
0: We're yes. recording at the same time for the first time ever I think and
1: yeah I think so too yeah because last time you were in you're in uh Abu Dhabi right but we just had dinner and we can talk anyways go ahead true anyways um so to, to kind of hone in on a specific point like Germany restarting its coal plants has yep. got to be the most backward step in Europe that I've seen in some time yeah um like are, are they th- are they in that tight of a grip with Ru- like of a relationship with Russian gas um, first question that kind of comes up is like, why not get it from the Middle East? Do they have like an infrastructure problems to kind of start accepting fuel by other countries? Um, well, European, yeah, like why are they, Yeah.
0: the European economy runs on Russian gas, like almost literally, like if they, if, here's the thing, most people don't realize this. Russia has not shut off the taps yet. They have not turned off the pipelines just yet. They've made it difficult to get but they haven't turned it off. If they were to yeah. turn it off, Germany is going to go back to like rubbing sticks together to start fires. Wow. Cuz they can heat nothing and none of their power plants work. And it's not even winter yet. Can you imagine if they shut it off in the winter?
1: Yeah, that would be that'd be bad. Yeah, it's I think, going to get really bad. So so in response to that, they basically kickstarted but out of all energy sources, they restarted their coal plants. I mean, I'm I'm not sure if they have anything else. But
0: well, well, that's the thing. What else are they gonna restart? I mean, gas was the go-to, and they don't have any of that. I mean, nuclear, they have enough power enough to power 10 percent of the economy, not more. Uh, mm. Solar and wind infrastru- solar and wind infrastructure has only gotten like cheaper than oil and gas in the last couple years. know and it's the the, there has not been a massive build out of that infrastructure just yet it's increasing enormously but not yet Mm -hmm. um like what's left like they don't have that much hydroelectric that they can build out in a snap the only thing they have Mm -hmm. left is to start burning coal in the old coal plants which is dumb but they don't have a choice but this is this is a stopgap measure and the thing is you know the people ask the questions like oh why can't germany just import gas from somewhere else it's like okay They've been importing all of their gas from Russia and they've been doing it through pipelines. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're going to import it from somewhere else, like, say, Qatar, all right, where's like Uh most of the world gets their gas, um, they're going to have to do it by ship. And if you're going to do it by ship, you need something called an LNG terminal, liquid natural gas terminal. So when Qatar loads it on the ship, you need to get it off the ship somehow. And that's done through a port. Uh, And they don't have those ports because they never thought they were necessary to build.
1: Because they were just so reliant on the pipelines, exactly, and
0: Mm -hmm. they can't. And there are no pipelines that go from Qatar to Europe. There aren't any. Um, So interesting. You know, the only option to get like a uh, sorry a floating LNG Mm terminal—but even those don't have the capacity to offload anywhere near as much gas as they would need as fast as they would need it. And also, you would have to find someone who would be willing to give it to you because the ones in use are currently hired by someone.
1: Yeah, yeah, because because that's one thing. Well, that definitely hits on like one of the questions that I asked, which is like, do they not have the infrastructure necessary to start accepting fuel by other means? So it seems like, yeah, this LNG terminal is a very big obstacle for them to just veer off of Russian gas, even if temporarily. Um, I did a bit of research into looking into like basically whether Germany has a kind of an equivalent of the Defense Production Act. Um, for clarification, the Defense Production Act is Pretty much, you know, in in the time of war or in the state, like when the nation's basically at a time of war or an emergency, the president can basically force any sort of organization or corporation to start producing something specific that might help um, with whatever effort they're kind of going after. I think with COVID, uh, it happened um, where I forgot which corporations exactly, but you know, they were basically forced to start making PPE, like face masks yeah. and hand sanitizer and all that stuff. Um, so like this baby could formula. easily be something. Oh, was that baby formula too? Yeah, and baby formula and lumber and Lord knows how many other things uh, mm-hmm. that there was a shortage <laughs> of over COVID. Um, but yeah, like when I looked at it and I was like, okay, the German government's kind of in a state of emergency right now because they're they could potentially get their gas cut off at any moment, and that's gonna bring them back to the Stone Age. So, you know, German's great for their engineering. So why not tell one of your engineering corporations just make an LNG terminal? Um, yeah. But I I did a bit of digging into like German politics and I didn't really see an equivalent of the Defense Production Act. Like I wasn't really able to find anything on it. Meaning yeah, that-
0: there, there, there are there are historical reasons why Germany is uncomfortable having the government instructing private industry to build shit for them.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It was the same time Everyone went on vacation and nothing happened.
0: Yeah. Also, there was um, a little fight in the Ardennes forest, but don't worry about that.
1: Yeah, it was a it was a skirmish. We'll call it a skirmish. Yeah, um, a little,
0: a little slap fest with uh, the French. Nothing much. Uh,
1: slap um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So so like yeah. The, the, there's no like equivalent of the Defense Production Act. So like if Germany needs to build an LNG top, an LNG terminal. Um, they're actually going to need to like shell out the money and pay for everything, which would put them in quite the crunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and just you know, figuring out the infrastructure, the resources, and figuring out the money to actually do all that stuff in an economy that they're in right now—that um, might be quite difficult. So I kind of see, you know, people are kind of looking at Germany like, "Come on, I thought you were better than this." But it seems like the only option they have is just taking Russian gas, isn't it?
0: Yeah. looks like it. And they've already begun to tap into their emergency reserves. They said that. And by the way, it's not even winter. Like, do you know how much they go through in the winter? Because the, the primary way bet. to heat your home in Germany, like they don't have those electric heat pumps and stuff that you got on the East coast in the US. It's, it's gas. It's mainly gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of screwed.
1: Kind of. I mean, Europe. Yeah. European winters are no joke. I mean, I think, uh, you know, us being in the middle east uh we we can't really complain about snow and winter laughs in just boston. Means... no oh, true yeah. <laughs>, laughs in boston good times um but yeah i mean it's like that that that's like one thing or one realization that kind of came up of you know it Germany wasn't really seen as as a as a nation that would be screwed in this event but once the invasion took place and then all the power dynamics kind of happened the way it did in between Russia and other European countries they were kind of exposed as being you know in the grip of Russia's power and not being able to do anything about it and running into a situation where they would kind of go back to the stone age if if any you know if anything kind of happened where russian gas was cut off from germany um there was a second realization kind of going back to the point of it's still kind of surprising to this day and this is something that i think the two of us brought up with aiden um aiden gold when we had that conversation with him um it's still surprising to this day that people are scared of nuclear energy because of events like fukushima and chernobyl um yeah. so like a bit of context for again both of our listeners. Um, we, so like Aziz and I kind of went on a quick drive around Kuwait and we were talking about this and any sort of concern or worry I had about a potential meltdown happening again kind of went away fairly quickly. Those two issues b- happened because of instances where there was a complete lack of common sense. But I feel like in order to clarify them, I think it would be good to clarify a few things, first of all. Um, so just to make sure everyone's kind of on the same page, again, both of our listeners are on the same page, yeah. um, Most and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but most, if not all, nuclear power in the world is generated by nuclear fission right now, right?
0: 100, 100%, yeah.
1: Yeah. So nuclear fission is basically when there's a fiss- fissile material, so mm-hmm. i.e. where material where atoms are given energy to the point where their nuclei rip apart and start hitting the nuclei of other atoms. Um, that starts a chain reaction because more nuclei are ripped apart. They start hitting other nuclei, um, which is yeah. what generates the energy. It causes um, a decay so
0: of heavier elements into lighter elements, which unleashes a, a large amount of energy in the form of heat, yeah, as well as um, radiation.
1: Yeah. So that that entire process, that chain reaction, basically happens in a reaction chamber. And the reaction itself normally if it happens in the wild, although it'll never happen in the wild, um, would go on until it kind of blew up or heated everything around itself, uh, which is basically what a nuclear bomb is. But the one thing that stops it is in normal nuclear fission reactors, um, there are basically mediators that are boron rods that are brought into and out of the chamber. And when the boron rods are fully inserted into the reaction chamber, the reaction is no more.
0: Right. So basically, you have this fissile material, and it's it's naturally venting uh, these radioactive particles that are coming out mm. of it. Right now, if you take that fissile material, um, the decay is happening because some of those little flying bits and pieces, those those particles, are hitting full nuclei of certain atoms, usually uranium two thirty five, and it splits the atom and that split generates the heat and the radiation. And part of the radiation generated by that split goes and hits another atom and repeats the process, Mm -hmm. hence the term chain reaction, right? Exactly. So when it, when it happens in a continued fashion, totally uncontrolled is when you have an amount of it that generates that's called a critical mass. So if you're Mm -hmm. at criticality, the, the reaction can then sustain itself and accelerate. Yeah. Okay. So so basically, in, in, inside of a nuclear reactor, you have criticality, but you stop it from going haywire and just completely out of control by using something like boron in order to slow it down. So that's the mm-hmm. control rod that you, that you insert into the nuclear core in order to get it to slow down the reaction and stop causing yeah. uh, the atoms to split and stop causing the heat and radiation.
1: Yeah, so it's basically if you if you ever want the reaction itself to stop, then right. you use the boron rods to make them stop. Um so putting the engineering hat on for a little bit, right? When someone would design a system like this, one would think that you design a reactor such that if the mechanism's holding the boron rods would fail, mm-hmm. you know, you have to prioritize the chain reaction that's going on and and stopping it if your system fails. So the mechanism holding the, the mechanism's holding the boron rods in the event of a failure, would just release them in some way and they'd just plop into the reaction chamber so that their reaction would slow down or stop. Mm-hmm. Um that's not how at least the ones in Chernobyl, Chernobyl were designed, because the boron rods were just left out of the reaction where the chain reaction basically got so hot and heated the water around it that was supposed to cool it, and to the point where it basically blew the three-ton steel top. Off of the reactor, and yeah. when that reaction was kind of exposed to the air and all the engineers working around it, um, that's when the whole meltdown basically happened. That's why no one really lives in Chernobyl right now. So again, common sense would avoid this if we were sticking with fission, because you know, if yeah. if I have you know boiling water that I need to maintain in a pot, and then I have a fire under it, whatever system I'd build would say. You know, if something happens, stop the fire because that's the thing that's going to keep heating the reaction. That's the thing that's going to blow up, right? Yeah. Um, but I remember on our drive, you were kind of talking about something where you know the the common sense. You know, uh, there's something that I mentioned in our drive, but I think one thing you a really good point you brought up was about pretty much the history of like the basics of nuclear fission. I don't know if you remember it. So
0: yeah, so here's the thing: the the fission reactors that they had in the Soviet Union. I mean, if you want to use the analogy of like automobile safety, like, you know, today we have Volvos and what you're talking about is a Model T, Mm -hmm. you know, like a Ford Model T from 1912 or whatever, where basically if you get hit, you're dead and Volvo is like kind of engineered for safety in every respect. The basics of nuclear fission, by the way, have not changed. It's you're getting a critical mass of atoms to set off a chain reaction, to generate heat, to boil water, to run a turbine, right? Right. But, but, you know, we are the venture bros after all. And we have to talk about adventures every now and then, um, there are people looking at ways to do that in a safer manner and also more efficient. So there's a company based out of, uh, I think it was Washington, um, called Terra power, uh, Terra power kind of came to fame because it was backed by Bill Gates and the Gates foundation. So Terra power is building a, a what's called a molten salt reactor. Now, before we move on to like fusion and whatnot, so fission is is active and running today and generating power in various countries today. It's generating power in the UAE. It's generating power all around Europe. It's generating. I mean, the largest uh, European plant is in Ukraine, actually called Zaporizhia, and um, uh, yeah. So th- there's there's a lot of nuclear power plants around the world. So Terra Power kind of has a slightly different take on it. So again, you mentioned one of the risk factors in the traditional reactor systems is that water is flowing through the core, um, if not enough water flows through the core, the rods can melt down. They get too hot and mm-hmm. they begin to melt, right? And that kind of sets off more criticality that you can't mediate with boron rods. Right. If, if the water in the core gets too hot without getting circulated uh, at a fast enough speed, it generates too much steam, the steam that would otherwise run the turbine, you don't get that steam out of there fast enough it creates a ton of pressure inside. And again, like you said with Chernobyl, it blows the top off of it and you have an outright explosion. That's not a nuclear explosion. That's an explosion that throws nuclear material everywhere. Yeah. It's different from a nuclear bomb. It's not the same thing, okay? Right. But the point is, how do we run a similar system where we can run turbines um, off of the heat being generated by a nuclear reaction without running the risk of a steam explosion from inside the reactor. So mm-hmm. Terra Power, this company that Bill Gates is backing, um, is actually building something called a molten salt reactor. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It, instead of running water through the core, it runs mm-hmm. molten salt. And it's the same salt that's mm-hmm. on your table, NaCl, uh, natrium chloride, sodium chloride. It's um, it, it melts down at a very, very high temperature. I believe it's about 1400, 1500 degrees. And as it passes through the uh, nuclear uh, reaction, um, which is much, much hotter than, than even like the molten salt, um, that molten salt can be pumped out and run through a heat exchanger where it heats up water and the water becomes steam and that runs a turbine. So even hypothetically speaking, if that system explodes and blows the uh, steam right out of the top of it, it's not radioactive steam it hasn't been anywhere near the nuclear reaction it went through a, a heat exchanger where it was heated by the molten salt and the molten salt is kept safely and separately from the water but the molten salt does not become a gas by heating it up uh, at least not at those temperatures so you never have this massive runaway kind of increase in pressure inside the reactor so that in and of itself is much safer. And this idea, by the way, is not uh, kind of a pie in the sky crazy idea because not only have they built out the first basic molten salt reactor, but they are in the process right now of transforming an old Wyoming coal power plant into a uh, molten salt reactor test facility. And this is going to be generating about 500 mm-hmm. megawatts. So it's not nothing. This can power, about you know, something about half the size of the city of Boston. So wow. You know, yeah, what's actually sorry? fun
1: about that? Um, fun fact about that I heard is that it's actually the molten salt that they're going to be using is from the tiers of coal mining company CEOs. Yes. It's
0: pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty cool. Haha, mansion. mansion. But uh, yeah, so this is this is a much safer system. And on top of that, it's actually much, much cheaper to construct and takes up a lot less space than the 1970s style massive like you know nuclear steam stacks, you know, big cooling pools type system. Right. You know, think about yeah. the thing in in on the Simpsons, you know the Simpsons intro when uh, uh-huh. Homer's working at the nuclear plant and they've got these massive like that sort of a system is no longer necessary because what they're building now is only about the size of an existing coal plant, it's smaller even. And again, you can kind wow. of recycle most of what goes on at a coal plant, because it's only the mechanism by which you are heating up the water that generates the steam that turns the turbines that's different. The rest of it is just the same old, you know, power generation technology. So if this works on the small scale, um, it should be able to be scaled up and done at a much, much lower price point. You're talking about something that is one fifth to one sixth the price of a standard uh, nuclear facility per kilowatt generated. So
1: yeah to go off on a smaller tangent before you get to you know the couple more points that you were planning on making but I think it's it's been really cool seeing how coal plants have or coal mines or coal plants have kind of been repurposed so I know for a fact that you know this is one that's pretty cool there was another one I've heard in South Dakota where a coal a coal mine has been repurposed to turn into a massive massive detector for dark matter particles Oh yeah. Um where they just have that isolated, um, I forgot what it was. It was like liquefied gas in a tank and xenon, maybe? I, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, it's like xenon um, gas. Yeah, and then they're basically using that to detect if a particle would pass through that chamber. Um, but yeah, the, the the modern science that's being built right now off mm-hmm. of the ruins of the coal industry or it's pretty cool it's like it's like we're repurposing former energy sources
0: pretty much yeah so yeah. you know there's a lot of uh, people and a lot of funds out there focused on kind of reinventing nuclear technology um there's a fund called nucleation capital that was introduced by a friend of mine um and they actually have a rolling fund so if you want to invest you can go ahead and do that but um yeah. Full disclosure, I'm not affiliated with nucle- Nucleation Capital in any way. I'm not a GP or an LP, but uh, mm-hmm. they are, I mean, they've been working on a number of, or working with a number of different founders on various projects here and there. So right now, the short-term solution is to find fission that can be A, much smaller, B, much safer, and C, much quicker to build, to construct, and actually connect to a grid. And a lot of people have been doing that in a lot of places, like we said, with TerraPower. Power. And once the TerraPower example works, by the way, you can then go repurpose a whole bunch of coal plants around the world and make them run on the similar technology. Um, mm-hmm. General Electric, GE Hitachi, uh, over in Canada, actually has ways to power up um, electric grids in places that are a bit too remote to be connected to the main grids, like say around Ottawa and Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're doing what's called an SMR, a small modular reactor. A small modular mm-hmm. reactor is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's kind of, it, it looks like a gigantic a battery except it fits in the back of a uh, uh you know one of those trailers oh, wow. you know, kind of like a shipping container size thing and then they have this entire facility where that can be loaded in and loaded out similar to a gigantic battery that gets changed once every like 10 years and that contains the entirety of the nuclear mechanism so there's never ever any handling of any kind of like open cores inside these facilities and they look like warehouses and those things can generate 250 to 500 megawatts which again each one is like you know the the city of boston requires a gigawatt so it's wow the the technology has come very 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 far and right now governments around the world like what france is doing with edf is um uh, you know these governments are finding ways to finance this uh in a a much friendlier and much more affordable way so
1: yeah what's actually what's actually pretty cool and this kind of goes to the second point of of um you know the two kind of things we kind of talked about in our drive that i mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier but you know there's a lot of this work being done on fission but the surprising thing or what makes this industry so much more exciting is that Fission's not going to be the way or the only way moving forward, right? Sure, there's going to be improvements to the systems like using the molten salt reactors um, instead of water to avoid building pressure, like you mentioned. But um there's another type of nuclear method of generating nuclear energy, which is nuclear fusion. Right. right. That is definitely going to be a greener, safer, kind of more risk-averse way of generating energy. Yep. Um yeah, because it, it seems like most of the most of the exciting things that are being They're going to be coming up on the timeline of nuclear energy, um, just have to do with the initial runs of these fusion reactors. Um, But I think it would be great to explain to both of our listeners what uh, a fusion reactor is. Okay, so, mom and dad, fusion reactors (laughs) are. You want to do it in Arabic?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So. Okay, so we've discussed what fission was, which is when you take a heavy element and then you run it through a process where a particle breaks its nucleus and makes it a smaller, lighter element and in the process uh, releases energy, right? Fission is the reverse. So what fission does is it takes a lighter element and then sort of compresses it to generate a heavier element, which in the process generates a lot of heat and uh, also a little bit, a negligible amount of radiation. I mean, infinitely less radiation than, than fission. So in, in fusion, and the thing about fusion is when you mention it to a lot of people, you know, they, they kind of roll their eyes because fusion, imagine talking about flying machines in the 1850s and sixties, where it was seen as something that only the mad professor, you know, working in some secret underground lab or whatever, in a barn was working on kind of quietly, and everyone thought they were crazy and thought, hey, maybe if it worked out, it'd be kind of cool, but still, that guy's really crazy, and people have been trying this forever, and it hasn't really worked. And this is the attitude most people have towards fusion, because there have been various waves of kind of fusion frenzy that have hit humanity over the years. So in the 30s, there was like this fusion craze, we could do fusion in the 50s, there was suddenly a fusion craze, we can do fusion in the 70s and the 80s, and ultimately, what's happening is the efficiency is improving at a rate that is greater than Moore's law. So that's one thing, but the thing is, you know, there's there's a magical number in fusion called Q. Um, Q is basically the ratio of energy in versus energy out, and uh, so far the energy in has always been greater than the energy out. The best anyone has ever done was the jet fusion reactor in the UK, which I believe did 0.7. So for every unit energy in, 0.7 units energy came out. And really, what it comes down to is the ability to um um well look let's look at the analogy okay so fusion is the way stars are powered right you know you look up to the sky and stars have been burning for you know billions of years they have never been refueled and they don't run out and they're still running and they generate an immense amount of energy so imagine if you had the ability to hold the sun in your hands and use that energy for whatever you wanted it would be infinite it's this ball of immense heat and it never runs out. I mean it does, but it's not in any time scale relevant to humanity. So you know, and that that's that's what trying to build a fusion reactor is like. Now, there's a number of reasons why fusion so far has been unsuccessful, but the main reason is because we have not been able to get that Q number over one. And this is the cumulative effect of a billion startups, right? Yeah. So on in the sun, for example, we can get enough of that compression to generate enough of the reaction to generate more energy than what goes into the reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, Only because you are talking about the sun. So the compression force is coming from the the immense, immense gravitational pull towards the center. So we can't exactly do that on Earth because we can't generate that kind of gravity. So sure. the best compression method we have for plasma in order to force fusion to occur at at, at a rate that is greater than the um, amount of uh, energy needed to start the you know the plasma reaction the only way to do that on earth is to use basically an extremely strong magnet so this mm-hmm. is ionized plasma it reacts to magnets and it can be compressed using magnets right so far we have not been able to create a magnet powerful enough to create the compression needed. Now, all of that changed in September of 2021, when Commonwealth Fusion Systems, which is a startup that's backed by Lower Carbon Capital and MIT, based in Massachusetts, basically created uh, these, um, uh, what, what they call high temperature semiconductors. So these semiconductors that generate the magnetic fields, The problem so far has been that they melt by the time you are running the power through them necessary to generate a strong enough magnetic field. They just become liquid. Now, with high temperature semiconductors, that stops happening. And you can run the enormous currents you need to run through them to generate huge magnetic fields and do it while the structure remains solid, because A, the actual material science has developed to a point where it doesn't melt, and B, you actually have enormous amounts of uh, liquid helium running through it to keep it extremely, extremely cold. You're talking about roughly four Kelvin, which is cold.
1: Wow, <laughs> no? close to absolute zero.
0: Yeah. So that's how cold it needs to run. Now, Commonwealth yeah. Fusion Systems, the startup out in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, you know, they have confirmed the ability to create and run those magnets and in theory you should be able to push the uh, uh the magnetic yield up to around 20 tesla and that is a magnetic field that is powerful enough where if i switched it on in the middle of an airport it would suck 747s out of the sky wow it, it would it would prevent hundreds of planes from even taking off it's that kind of magnetic pull
1: i mean for um, for a sense of like perspective i think this is like Five times more powerful than like a super, super strong MRI machine, right?
0: Yeah, and this is, you know, it's an exponential scale.
1: So, right, exactly. So, so like, not maybe not even five, but like several orders of magnitude stronger than than an MRI machine, which means like, you know, whatever you have in mind, where like, God forbid you walk into an MRI or you get one with braces on next and you know, your, your head's stuck to the machine.
0: No, but basically it, we're talking about magnetic fields that will suck the iron out of your blood. You know, it is, yeah. it, it's, it's immense, immense power. And basically they're going to use that magnetic field to further compress plasma. Now the, the math, you know, the paper, the paperwork says that they can get a Q ratio of 10 by using this magnet that they've created and trialed at MIT in September of last year. Again, this is a real mm-hmm. magnet that actually works. It's not a theory, so in the event that they can create enough of those magnets, because they're building them right now, it's going to take a few years. This thing is going to be trialed or it's, it's going to be switched on around 2024 or 25. Mm-hmm. Um, in the event that this works and Q is positive, fusion will become possible. And that will be a Wright brothers moment for us, or it'll be Benjamin Franklin and you know, his kite getting zapped by lightning. Because, yeah. because after that, humanity will change forever because energy sure. will be infinitely cheap. Yeah. Like I want you to think of it like light. Okay. So for generations, humanity had to plan their day around daylight because at night you couldn't see anything anymore. And it was far too expensive being able to see because you needed candles and candles were very expensive to manufacture and burnt out too quickly and weren't too very efficient. There were open flames yeah. which generated, you know, heat and generated the fire risk. So, it even, you know, you couldn't really build a lot of modern architecture because it would get too dark in the center unless you had an open flame, which you didn't want to do. Yeah. And, you know, it think the world went dark at night.
1: It actually brings up, um, there, there's a saying that I, th- I think isn't too used much right now, but it's basically when you say something's worth the candle. It means because, like, yeah, some candles used to be expensive and they used to be very. Yeah, it was very expensive duration. to maintain
0: light. Like, if you if you if you, if you yeah. thought about what it would cost to keep your house illuminated in a way that we have it illuminated right now, it was it was oh, it, it a was a ton of wax. It would well, yeah, well, there's that, and also it would cost many times our earnings capacity. Nobody would be able to do it, and now that's it costs true. a micro fraction of a nickel, and nobody even considers yeah. it a cost anymore. So that what that's what would happen to not just light, but all of electrical power. Uh-huh. So imagine what you can do if electricity is infinite and costs nothing. Yeah. So that's what we're it's talking about. That's that's why Commonwealth Fusion Systems and others need to be able to do this. So their yeah. their plan, by the way, is to get this running in 2025. And if it works, it's 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 like being around in 1903 when the Wright brothers invent invent planes, and then 10 years after that, you have airlines. So wow. Here's the thing. So, actually, before we started recording, I was just kind of surfing videos on YouTube. And I saw this video of uh, Michio Kaku. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. This is a video from 2011. And he said, you know, just talking about, you know, climate and talking about energy policy and that kind of a thing. He was talking about yeah. solar in t- 2011. Now, he said he's a physicist, mm-hmm. he likes solar, but solar is still a long ways away from being viable um, commercially, you know? Yeah in 2011. But he also said that you know the price of solar is coming down year after year. And at some point, it's going to intersect or actually become cheaper, the price of generating a kilowatt hour using fossil fuels. And at that point, there's going to be a wind rush. There'll be a sea change and people are going to start adopting solar and that kind of a thing. Now, that sounded crazy in 2011, but last year, 10% of the world's energy came from solar. Wow. I mean, who saw that coming 10 years ago?
1: And of course, because solar investments is continuing. Is like,
0: yeah. yeah, I mean, they're building massive solar arrays everywhere in India and in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, UAE true. has a lot of them, so it's 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 not a hypothetical anymore. So Michio Kaku was right. Now, if you continue watching the same video, he said something about fusion, saying fusion feels about twenty years away. And he's talking about 2011. Yeah.
1: twenty
0: eleven. Yeah, 20 years away was was you know it will be twenty thirty one, so call it twenty thirty. Now, if if you if you keep by that number and you look at where we are right now, having invented the magnets necessary to generate 20 Tesla and trialed it inside of a lab at MIT and have it confirmed to work, yeah. and now the Department of Energy and MIT are both backing the effort by Commonwealth Fusion to actually build a functional reactor using these magnets by 2025 and then have it connect to the grid in the early 2030s, I'm really hoping he's we're we're right. i i mean i'm really hoping michio Kaku was right with his prognostication because if if that is true then worldwide emissions can go to zero by 2040. if that is true we can power direct air capture using this infinite free electricity and like suck 200 years worth of carbon dioxide out of the air in, in, a, in a decade
1: for a fraction of the price that it took to put for it out there for a fraction of the price.
0: yeah, for i mean yeah. instead of it being like right now it costs around $600 a ton to get co2 out of the air Right. Wow. Imagine being able to do that for like 0. 0.6 cents.
1: That's ridiculous. That's because the power definitely if you tried, a thing. like living Yeah.
0: So this is why it needs to work. But again, I know that when I say this, there's a lot of people who roll their eyes because fusion has been this thing that's just around the corner forever. But right. there's also a lot of respected physicists who now say that the breakthroughs necessary for this to happen are beginning that to take happened. shape. And and that yeah. that magnet is is truly understated in terms of its importance that is true
1: i mean it's, it's definitely going to be very interesting to just watch and i'm surprised not like a a big fuss hasn't been made about it even today um you know as we're two years away from when this thing this thing is expected to run for the first time um
0: there's never a big I mean, fuss yeah. was there a big fuss when they invented insulin no it just people who quietly did it in a basement right and then it kind of slowly seeped out to the world and everyone takes it for yeah. granted. and It'll be the same thing with us.
1: Yeah. Come to think about it. So it's very much like every single breakthrough scientific discovery has basically received that kind of reception by the public. It's always been like a, this is kind of too complex for the everyday person to understand So thank scientists, keep sciencing, I guess, and let's just yeah. leave, <laughs> go back to our jobs. Because I mean, like the Higgs boson received the same reception. Um the discovery of gravitational waves kind of received the same reception. And yeah, I mean, going back to the point at hand, I mean, with Michio Kaku saying that fusion is about 20 years away, 10 years ago. And the trend we're seeing right now is that nuclear, you know, the nuclear energy industry is kind of having its own awakening a little bit after going through a winter for such a long time. And now you mentioned that the scientists are saying that the breakthroughs necessary are actually happening. And then we have the spark test that's going to be happening in 2024. We do. We do seem to be on the right track for us eventually in 2030 or 2040 to, you know, to at least have. You know, I'm going to be super, super conservative here and say one neighborhood powered by a nuclear fusion reactor. In the early 2030s. In the early 2030s.
0: Here's I see the thing. it. And, in, in- Look, I'm, I'm really holding my breath for, um, for, for the spark reactor to go live. And by the way, they are far from the only people working on something, uh, you know, the ITER reactor in France, which is actually the largest construction project in, for in Europe right now is an enormous, um, fusion reactor. Very few people know that, but that's going to be turned down around 2025 as well. And we have to, you know, see what happens there. But, Uh um, um, you know what? Let's let's make uh, let's make another prognostication right now. Okay. In twenty thirty, we are going to record an episode um, with uh, hardware that is plugged into a grid that has
1: a fusion reactor on it. That would be an amazing thing if Venture Bros becomes the first podcast recorded on appliances powered by nuclear fusion. I'd be so down for that. Can we get like academic sponsorships <laughs> if possible? <laughs> that would be cool. Academic. Yeah, I don't know. That would be
0: fun. Can you Let's imagine see. if like fusion That'd reactors be... become so small and plentiful that it's like, you know, there's like little Honda gasoline uh, uh, generators. Can you imagine oh, if, yeah, it's, yeah. If, it, if it's that small?
1: Honestly, eventually I see it. It could be that tiny. Yeah. Like instead In meantime, of do you know do you know what would be super super cool and this is probably a discovery we're gonna make like ten thousand years from now, yeah. If you know when when this is something we kind of walked through when we went to the uh, the science center. I forgot its name here, but
0: um, Salim, I, I, Wait, yes,
1: no. Was that Abdullah Salim? Yeah, yeah. I think it was right.
0: Uh, yes, Abdullah Saddam Cultural Center. That's it.
1: Yeah. So, so basically the Abd al cultural center is a collection of, you know, exhibitions. And one of the exhibitions is about space. Yep. And in one of them, it basically said, it, there, there's basically this like video that we watched about dark matter and dark energy and how, you know, when the Big Bang initially happened, it was impossible for matter in the in, in the amount or quantity that it was to survive because it would just be outweighed and outperformed by antimatter. And that would basically result in the universe kind of ceasing to exist. But there was dark matter and dark energy that kind of fought Mm -hmm. with matter in order to create everything we kind of see around us. Mm -hmm. Um, What would be very cool is to kind of leverage the either gravitational forces or whatever force that dark energy, dark matter has to use instead of um, magnets to just start those nuclear fusion reactors. Because, I mean, that's technically how most of the galaxies kind of came together. You know, gravitational pull is yeah. powered by dark matter and dark energy. So if we're able to harness that, like if in the next hundred thousand years, we discover a dark matter particle, we learn more about it. We learn how to leverage it. We learn how to create very strong, like controlled gravitational fields with it. And then use that nuclear fusion reactor to so just compress something ridiculous to the point where a handheld device has a sun inside of it powering it you yeah, know cr- let's just
0: get let's let's just get regular vanilla fusion working first and then, and then <laughs> right, we can harness right. your higgs boson particle reactor right.
1: <laughs> exactly that's uh i i kind of felt my hair kind of growing off in different directions like a mad scientist as i was saying that so
0: right morty yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, Alright, well in the meantime,
0: more. in the meantime, you should be uh, uh getting your ass up to the gym. Let's go, ciao chop.
1: Amen. Today's uh biceps, chest, and shoulders. I'm excited.
0: Yep, let's make you cry.
1: <laughs> sounds good, sounds good. Later. Bye-bye. Well,